Good evening, folks. Welcome to Radio XITM's presentation of Investigaciones Theologicae Mundorum. James, what's happening tonight? Right. Tonight I want to talk about how the manuscript thinks theology and meaning are related and what can count as an explanation, where it looks at how we should understand questions like, why should anything exist at all? Questions like that, bizarre, seemingly unanswerable questions we nevertheless ask at some points in our lives. And so we need to remind ourselves what those points in our lives are as a way to find out why we ask such questions. objects of these investigations are what are called worlds. World is understood as a sphere of meaning for an organism with some degree of self-awareness. Since quite different mechanisms of self-awareness may exist among various organisms, there may be correspondingly different phenomena attached to different worlds worlds perceived with different bases for what counts as meaningful. Meaning involves recognizing relationships among things, their similarities and differences from one another. Therefore, this must include differences between our individual awareness and that of other beings who have awareness of their own. Now, theology is particularly concerned with the values of similarities and differences, such as when an individual is told to avoid some X or seek some Y, perhaps even to cause the destruction of some X, like eliminating something harmful or evil or dangerous. We see this in cultures where people come to find certain things as tapu, forbidden, the Polynesian term we call taboo. It also includes how we identify certain other people as good, as having a reproducible, shareable goodness. One way this happens is that people can be told to avoid certain objects, certain behaviors, by others in society who have authority over them. But over time, perhaps as a kind of summation of individual intentions people recognize they share amongst themselves, there may also develop the sense of some larger purpose, some desirable greater goal for the society as a whole. And that results in individuals striving to act and perpetuate their common life 
under those goals, those values that advance certain intentions and behavior distinguish sacred from profane. But this is never a static process. Societies continually change criteria for what is okay and what is not okay. So this tells you that just as social behavior evolves, the dimensions of meaning are dynamic and evolve as well. And so there is a natural tension produced by the evolution of meaning over time. Meaning mutates and produces multiple meanings, especially with respect to a society's shared ultimate values and purpose. Attempting to resolve this tension might be called the beginning of reflective theology. Theology is not limited to the belief praxis of a specific historical religious body, though often it is. Rather, one can think of theology as the evolving thought that accompanies the awareness of any organism who is perplexed about the meaning of its place in the world. Any organism that sees itself as an entity in important ways distinct from the surrounding environment. So theology need not include specific reference to any concept of God. It does not preclude one, but in cases where theology does involve some notion of God, it must be acknowledged that this concept evolves over time along with others. Recognition of the natural evolution of any concept of the ultimate ground of being and meaning, I think counts as prima facie evidence that such an idea is not meaningless because the concept lives along with the language that supports it, that gives it a use. At the point where language itself should go away, well, that may write another story. But even within a given language, there exist very wide and diverse collections of attributes that can be applied to concepts like God. Some attributes may not constitute a proper definite description, phrases that denote a unique individual or object. Some attributes upon analysis may simply apply to the attributor, the attributor's needs, hopes, aspirations that are transferred to some sacred space beyond immediate experience. Such attributes may also reflect the limitations of the attributor's intellect and awareness. These may then be instantiated in some idea of a being that does not have those limitations, a perfect being. All of these can play a role in what can be attributed to a concept of God or any other representation of the ultimate ground of being and meaning. But questions of meaning, questions of sense, do lead one to ask how reference with respect to the concept of God arises, the existence of the object to which such a concept refers. One way is that it may arise simply in association with those broader philosophical questions like, why should there be anything at all? 
why anything should exist, questions whose darker implication in many instances is, why should I exist? In such cases, the feeling often arises in moments of psychological despair, where one questions their own existence, where one asks what makes it all worthwhile. But in times of greater assurance, the feeling may also arise as an act of pure speculative thought. You try to imagine everything you see around you as suddenly having vanished. You imagine there being nothing there at all. This produces a certain kind of wonder, a wonder that occupies space in both science and religion. Here, Dr. Vanaskin pipes up. Now we're getting somewhere. Das unbedingte. Yes, but you may not like every somewhere. To imagine forms of nothing has moral implications. Consider the phrase, nothing is true, everything is permitted. But if everything is permitted, then nothing is forbidden, including with apparent self-contradiction, nothing. A phrase like that is attributed to Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov. The assertion, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. The phrase in Russian, if you'll permit me, it appears in part four, book 11, chapter four, a hymn and a secret of the novel. Dmitri is quoting himself, recalling an earlier conversation with the journalist Rakitin. There are differences in translating Biesboza as if God does not exist over and against without God. Without God simply conveys independent of considering or thinking about God. If God does not exist is the more deliberate hypothetical assertion that something is not the case. For the radical humanist, Jean-Paul Sartre in Existentialism is a Humanism, 1946, the absence of God that entails everything is permitted was not the end of morality, but its beginning. It was the beginning of a new morality in which total responsibility must include not merely one's own misdeeds, but the anguish of those inflicted by others. Ironically, one can say, with God, everything is permitted, and that is equally the beginning of morality, where the responsibility of human freedom must be a morality that is self-imposed, not dictated by divine law. Yeah, 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 this is Alice's nonsense. Everything is permitted. Everything is not permitted. Permitted, permitted. It makes no difference if everything is permitted. Our world is deterministic, the ultimate ground of being. Das is the laws of physics, when that means everything has causation. Everything we do, every thought we have, every activity in our body has its cause. Everybody that exists in the universe has cause for its current state. With or without God, so have God if you must. It's quite irrelevant. Have ye no bloody soul, men? 
I bet you wanted to be an altar boy because I know you sang in the church choir and you grew up a bleeding Lutheran. Now the good Lord forgives that minor errancy, but when ye were a little chiseler and sang in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost on Christmas Eve, just remember when you sang for the baby Jesus, you wanted to entertain him, not frighten him. Because if you say everything we do is caused, then we are nothing but manky automata parading as human beings. We have no free will. And I know that as a scientist, you're acting as if you're deciding what experiment you're going to use to prove your theory. Otherwise, how could you prove anything? Well, answer me. Just which God the Father does the baby Jesus come from? Which God is he part of? Allah? Brahma? El? Marduk? Odin? Phanas? Tengri? They're all creator gods. There's a creator god for every letter of the alphabet. For all I know, there's a creator god for every creature. It's nonsense, nonsense. Too many creator gods is like too many cooks in the kitchen. It's a good enough Vienna. You end up with a rotten, foully kitchen. Gentlemen, gentlemen, perhaps you are both looking in the wrong places. In some heaven above, brought down to earth by the baby Jesus, or in the mind of man on earth, sufficient for its own heaven. What's important here is that we find a way to become better humans, not seek out some revelation, nor aggrandize ourselves to imagine we are God. We must seek what is proper, and what is proper, our pure reason alone tells us that what we think to do in any circumstance can be put to the test of a simple standard. Is that action one we would will that everyone do in every circumstance? Is that action one we could make a universal law? If it is, then the action following is based on a valid principle, and we don't need God for that. One might want something like God for that because it is reasonable to hope what is discovered by the principle of universality, what we ought to do, should bring us happiness, fulfillment. But what matters is that we can know what we ought to do by our own reason. Well, let's not overthink it. From whence does human reason come, after all? Where did we get the reason to let us apply any principle? From God. God gave us reason to think, and God gave us free will to use our reason properly. So God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to preach that to the world, to tell us how to use our reason properly, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful and pure of heart, to be a peacemaker in times of conflict. All this and more Jesus preached as a message from God the Father, showing us how to be truly human, as the Father intended, Dr. Van Ostrin. Perhaps the question of why anything should exist is better understood by asking how things came to exist. Why might simply express surprise that something has occurred? 
Why seems concerned with the purpose or telos for something's existence. But existence as a whole hasn't been shown to have a purpose. So how focuses us on the method or the mechanism of something's occurrence? And where we look to causation as one means to satisfy what counts as an explanation for why a thing exists. The methods of science seek explanations. Scientific procedures resist allowing something's existence to be understood as merely brute fact. Their bruteness simply replaces having reasons. And uh, science resists satisfying some made-up purpose as well. Or being content with having no explanation. Yet, isn't that just what the Copenhagen interpretation of reality at the micro level is doing? It's disinterest in whether there is isomorphism between a mathematical account of the wave function and what is actually going on in reality. Any final explanation for what is really happening seems left hanging. As I recall, in the ethics, Spinoza states a strong version of an explanatory principle. This is what Leibniz called the principle of sufficient reason. Spinoza says, for everything a cause or reason must be assigned either for its existence or for its non-existence. Indeed, cause must be extended not only to the existence of things, but also their essence. Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason, along with his principle of contradiction, also rejects the possibility of brute, unexplainable facts. And these principles apply not only to the facts and truths we claim to know, but also to events that occur independent of our knowledge. And here the manuscript resumes questioning its own thinking. If the principle of sufficient reasons demand for explanatory intelligibility is not inconsistent with sciences seeking the explanatory power of causation, there are still questions. To what does sufficient reason apply? To entities and their properties? To only actual entities? To possibilities as well? Does it apply to every true proposition so an explanation must include why it's true? Well, you can continue that sort of questioning till Ragnarok. And what then about propositions containing primitive concepts that seem, on hearing, quite perspicuous? Things in need of no further explanation based on our fundamental experience of the world and some primitive idea of fairness in relations among people, for example. These are absent any sense of bruteness. Is the equality of humankind such a concept? Yes, that is precisely the sort of thing I am driving at. We have such concepts of fairness and universality as the basis of human morality embedded in our very minds, as it were. I recall from Uni Days, Aristotle identifying four types of causal explanation, aitia. 
they amount to four kinds of answers to questions of why should anything exist. A material cause, hule, is what accounts for change or movement in a thing based on the material that composes it, as bronze determines the properties of a statue. A formal cause, eidos, is change or movement based on the shape or design of the thing, including abstract relationships as the ratio two to one shapes the octave in music. The efficient cause, kinun, of change or movement is the agency of external things as a designer or craftsman creates a table or a father is the efficient cause of a boy. The final cause, telos, of change or movement is the end or purpose for which a thing is what it is as a plant is the reason or end purpose for seeds. But Think about how causes have been turned around to support purpose in previously existing states of affairs. You find these absurd circular arguments for intentional design in how features of the world came to exist. Edward Hitchcock, for example, 19th century professor of geology, president of Amherst College, he held it constituted proof God had providentially planned for human needs because we can observe that wherever we have a city, we find there are also lakes and rivers nearby for people to have water to drink, grow crops, to float boats, to transport goods. Really, it's unclear what can be ruled in or out to count as an explanation especially when one is looking to explain the existence of everything. One feels dissatisfaction with the cause that always allows yet another antecedent cause. It hasn't given the explanation demanded, but a cause that somehow is its own cause isn't much better. Our language hasn't got the apparatus to make it comprehensible what the nature of that sort of cause is. And if you try to move beyond to the realm of non-physical entities or abstract principles as explanatory, you face the problem of how non-physical entities can possibly interact with or affect the physical world. So you bring out Occam's razor, non sunt multiplicanda entia praetor necessitatem, don't add any entities except by necessity. We find it natural to wonder how the universe came to be, to ask, could all this not have existed? But that opens Pandora's box in a host of questions, such as, did the universe have an actual beginning? Was there never a time when something did not exist? What constitutes something? What makes something a universe? What constitutes the absence of all that exists? What are the boundaries of beginning? How was your day? Tell me about your day. How was your day? It becomes less clear there is anything natural about such questions at all. 
We remember being under a certain pressure when questions such as these seemed to arise, when we first thought of them. For me, it was with relatively little pressure, I could imagine the world as existing eternally, as not ever having come into being or ever going out of being, just as I could imagine my own consciousness existing without end, a readily available thought, but a frightening thought because I immediately felt the gnawing pressure of that thought, too. What if, after taking existing things away, one at a time, until all that was left is your own consciousness, try dealing with the anxiety of that. It turns into sheer panic. The only thing that exists is your own consciousness. Well, you'll wish for non-existence. It is often said ancient Greeks saw the ultimate matter out of which the world was made as eternal. In contrast to Western theology, Christian theology, which ignored Hebrew scripture describing a pre-existent chaos of water and earth, there you had a formless void perhaps, but not sheer nothingness. Christian theology developed its own explanatory hypothesis, creation ex nihilo, not a scientific hypothesis, but a theologically explanatory claim to the intrinsic goodness of a created world. Perhaps historically early cultures were incapable of contemplating the idea of sheer nothingness, there seemed a need to fill space, the Christian space of nothing before God's creation was filled with God. That should be enough to satisfy something. But ask yourself, what movement in thinking leads to postulating a first cause, itself uncaused? Like in the second of St. Thomas Aquinas' Quinquivia, for example, Greek Adamus Leucippus and Democritus, and later, despite differing conclusions, Aristotle in book one of the physics commonly held that the matter making up all that exists has always existed. While they're capable of changing place, atoms, the ultimate constituents of all matter, are nevertheless ungenerated and indestructible. Well, Contemporary physicists tell us the underlying vacuum energy that makes up interstices of the universe is something. It is always a fundamental state of spontaneously coming into and going out of existence. Its behavior is quantified in Heisenberg's energy time uncertainty principle. The effects can be experimentally observed in phenomena such as the Casimir effect. When the Jewish Dutchman Baruch Spinoza, you mentioned, sometimes talked about God as the sum of the natural and physical laws of the universe, not an individual entity or creator, it would be absurd to pray to such a reality. Perhaps. But now the author of this manuscript makes the most remarkable statement. Just a few words, really. Quite simple, 
and in a certain sense perfectly clear, but I cannot remove the words from my mind thinking about what they might mean. The author says, the meaning of the world we can call God. Wittgenstein once also made such a remark, the meaning of the world we can call God. One then seems forced to reconsider what it is we call the world, the idea that we have to elicit its meaning by accounting for every cause, for everything that exists and that might possibly exist and every event that happens and has happened and might possibly happen. The task seems overwhelming. But think about what we do when we account for things. For some, I suspect for many, that accounting involves identifying the causes for things and events and possibilities, which of course leads one to require causes for those causes, and so on to chains of antecedent causes that reach to infinity, perhaps an infinite number of causal chains. At what point do we have an explanation? Well, perhaps that depends on what we need for an explanation. And in many instances, only one or two causative factors suffice. When your child asks you, why is the sky blue? You can say perhaps because it is reflecting blue things and it's the blue light that gets scattered most, scattered into many different directions all over the sky. The wavelengths of other colors aren't scattered as much, and that might suffice. We don't, for example, have to explain why there is a sky to answer that question, but for other questions, it's not enough to produce even an apparently infinite series of causal antecedents. Something more seems demanded. And so the question arises, does an infinite series of antecedent causes as a whole need an explanation when each antecedent satisfies the requirement of explaining its consequence? When Leibniz argues for the existence of God based on the principle of sufficient reason, the unexplained series arises and by magic goes away. On the supposition God does not exist, one must therefore be left with only the existence of contingent things. Could the explanation for the entirety be itself a member of the series? No, since by definition, no contingent being is self-explanatory. But the explanation also cannot be outside the series since the supposition is that no non-contingent being, God, exists. Yet on the supposition God does not exist, there remains something unexplained, the series of contingent beings. So if everything has an explanation, God therefore must exist. Why should circularity matter if explanation is satisfied? So as part of a theological inquiry that asks you to imagine nothingness, Imagining absolute nothingness raises questions which appear very much like those of natural science. Try to actually imagine removing all matter from the universe. 
in a Newtonian view of things, one is still left with space as a kind of absolute background structure. Empty space, space emptied of all matter, is still space. But if one imagines space in a post-relativity view, space is not a permanent background structure. It is itself one of the dimensions of how material objects interact with one another. One could say space is an artifact of gravity. None of this should lead one to think that nothing possesses some kind of being. However, absolute nothingness may simply be impossible to imagine, hence the dissatisfaction and the need for transcendent reality beyond time and space to fill that void. For certain ways of thinking, and this involves actually putting the mind into such a state, there arises wonder about why all of this exists. From here, it is a short step to, does that which exists have a purpose? Suppose one possible answer to why is that the universe just happens to exist. It exists as a brute fact. To many, this answer carries considerable feelings of being unsatisfying. And yet many people of rigorous scientific minds occupy just this position, at least by default, having no other explanation at hand. But there are a number of options for what just happens to exist might mean. It might mean, first, the universe has always existed. The brute fact is, in that sense, timeless because there is no beginning point from which time is measured. Or, two, the universe came into existence on its own, perhaps through spontaneous changes in energy phases from nothing as a state of zero energy. Three, the universe was caused to exist by something itself not in the universe, but totally inaccessible, not identifiable in any way as an intentional act and therefore inexplicable. Here, brute fact is simply pushed back to being at one more remove. In terms of existence per se, the first option is essentially a static model. Existence in some form never goes away. Perhaps the universe had always existed in a tight, compact state until from quantum fluctuations it underwent a phase transition to an expanding state, say, in a manner similar to how nuclear decay works. However, nothing is available to elucidate before and after in this model because it is unclear what time could have meant under those conditions. Another model of the first option could involve eternal inflation. We come into a universe already expanding, one that has always been expanding without a beginning point. Now, while it seems impossible to speak about expansion without there being some point at which expansion began, one can imagine a process of points where expansion stops and portions of the universe break off 
or combine with other portions to form new universes. And these in turn also expanded, subsequently having their own portions breaking off, those portions themselves expanding, breaking off, expanding ad infinitum. This model involves the constant creation of new child universes from parent universes, one of which we inhabit. The relevance of this parenting process to any single or originating universe remains unattainable, however, because in the overall expansion, all new universes formed exist beyond the limit of any possible transmission of light and therefore transmission of information to any other universe. Options two and three do allow for a primordial starting point of the universe, although what that could be is eternally masked. Indeed, some cosmological models speculate for what might have occurred in the history of our universe prior to 10 to the minus 43rd seconds after a primordial event of inflation. 10 to the minus 43rd defines Planck time, the time it would take a photon traveling at the speed of light to cross an equal distance to the Planck length. It is the smallest quantum of time below which time has no meaning. Prior to this point, relativity no longer applies and the laws of physics also do not apply because all fundamental forces of our universe in its current state, electromagnetism, gravity, the strong and weak nuclear forces are merged as one. And current laws of physics only generate infinities showing that something has gone wrong. In my mind, it remains unclear how the demand for a final cause, an uncaused cause, over against an endless series of antecedent causes as a full and final explanation for why this reality exists, results in a concept of God. About an uncaused cause, one can still ask, without contradiction, why should such a thing as that exist? The appellation uncaused cause attributed to some final cause stops at its supposition. That is, one can call it uncaused cause if it exists. But that it exists has not yet been shown. More important, it is unclear how it plays into establishing the existence of God in the sense of serving as a locus of reasons for why God created the world. Regardless of theologies that argue for the inherent goodness of creation, one is still left with a creation based on reasons knowable only to God. It is strange that theologies of unknowability can be so satisfying to some. Well, gang, this may be a good point at which to pause for this episode.
folks, we'd like to remind you that you're listening to the brightest spot on your radio dial. For every other Sunday evening, everybody has a great time with James and Alistair and Penpin and the rest of the gang figuring this all out. We'll see you a week from Sunday.